Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. After high school, Barnhouse enrolled in Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey, and he did personal work with Thomas Corwin Horton. After Dr. Barnhouse remarried, he settled into a home on an 82-acre farm near Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a sermon on death. A study of these verses will demonstrate the truth of our text. Death shall not be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ has called himself the bridegroom and believers the bride. The phase of the subject which we are about to consider might be called in one sense the wedding ceremony. For what we have been looking at in previous subjects is the life after death, the life after the wedding, the immediate presence with the bridegroom. But the actual death of the believer is that which takes him out of the condition of being engaged to Christ into that of being joined to him. Oh, when this is understood, how death will lose most of its terrors for the Christian, who will cease walking after carnal fears and will walk in the sight of the light that is to be found in the word of God. In the New Testament, there are three different Greek words that are used to describe the death of a believer. These words are used as figures of speech, but their associations with events in our life are such that they are rich in their ability to convey to us the joy that will be ours at the moment of our death. First of all, death is likened unto a sleep. We have seen that this cannot refer to the sleep of the soul or the spirit, but that it is speaking only of the body. When the news was brought to the Lord Jesus Christ from Mary and Martha that their brother Lazarus was sick, the Lord knew because of his omniscience when Lazarus died. He said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples understood the figure only in a literal sense, and they replied, well, Lord, if he's asleep, he shall be all right. And the Holy Spirit immediately adds, Actually, Jesus had spoken about his death, but they thought that he was speaking about falling into natural sleep. And this made Jesus tell them quite plainly, Lazarus has died, and I am glad that I was not there for your sakes, that you may learn to believe. When the first deacon, Stephen, preached his sermon recorded in the book of the Acts, he aroused the hatred of the religious leaders of Jerusalem who determined to kill him. And as they were stoning Stephen, we read, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There are a few other references, quite casual in their impact, which speak of the death of the believers as asleep. We read in Thessalonians, they which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. While in Corinthians there are two verses, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And then, listen, I will tell you a secret, we shall not all sleep. 
There are deep spiritual lessons to be gathered from this comparison without pushing to the absurdity of soul sleeping. Even outside the Bible, men had early seen the similarity between sleep and death. In fact, Homer, hundreds of years before Christ, said, Sleep is the twin of death. And Ovid wrote, What is sleep but the image of cold death? First of all, we may note that death, like sleep, brings us a sweet release from all cares and anxieties. The poets have sung of this through the centuries. Euripides wrote, O precious balm of sleep, thou that soothest disease, how pleasant that thou camest to me in the time of need. O divine oblivion of my suffering, how wise thou art and a goddess to be invited by all in distress. In the 16th century of our era, Philip Sidney wrote of sleep as the poor man's wealth, the prisoner's release, the indifferent judge between the high and low. And at the same time, Griffin wrote, Care charmer sleep, sweet ease in restless misery, the captive's liberty and his freedom's song, balm of the bruised heart, man's chief felicity, brother of quiet death, when life is too, too long. Shakespeare speaks of sleep as nature's soft nurse, and in Macbeth, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast, Amiel, in his journal, wrote, To sleep is to strain and purify our emotions, to deposit the mud of life, to calm the fever of the soul, to return into the bosom of maternal nature, thence to reissue, healed and strong. Sleep is a sort of innocence and purification. Now, to pass from these songs in praise of sleep, let us understand that death brings all these gems of bliss to the believer. No matter what the concerns of life, they end with our death. No matter what the sorrows and trials, they end with our death. No matter how you may have been harassed with problems and perplexities, they are all over the moment you are absent from the body and present with the Lord. In fact, the Word of God tells us that when we enter into the life of eternity, we shall not even remember this earth or anything of its life and cares. For in the new heavens and the new earth, the former, the one we live in now, shall not be remembered nor come into mind. This is in Isaiah 65:17. This, of course, must not be interpreted to mean that we will not know our loved ones. For as we shall see, death will unite us in one sense with them, while the second coming of Christ will do the same for those who are living at the time of his return. And as we close our eyes in the sleep of death, all that caused us a care will be sweetly blotted out. The sleep of death also brings us to the end of life's labor. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Holy Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their rewards follow with them. The Latin hymn on the death of Christ may also be applied to the death of the believer. 
the strife is o'er, the battle done. The victory of life is won, the song of triumph has begun. Alleluia. And sleep is also a period of complete relief from pain and suffering. I can remember years ago when I had to have an appendectomy. This was before the days of speedy rising and exercise after operations in a hospital. And then I had to lie for days with the great pain of the operation. At night it seemed to come the heaviest. But suddenly there would be that moment of slipping off into sleep and immediately the pain would be gone and there would be relief. And so it is with the death of the believer. How beautiful the wording of the verse we have quoted concerning the death of Stephen. His enemies were blaspheming, but suddenly he cried out, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together upon him and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And while the stones were crushing the life from his body, we read that he fell asleep. No one tucked his pillow in. It was stones that came to bring him sleep. Again, sleep is but for a little while. When we lie down to sleep, we expect to be awakened in but a few short hours, refreshed for the tasks of the next day. And thus it is that the resurrection of the believer is an awakening. It was thus that Jesus described his trip to Bethany to raise Lazarus. I go that I may awake him out of sleep. From all that we have seen, we gather the New Testament idea that at the very moment of death, all that is evil in this world slips away from the believer forever. How could Christ have better conveyed the idea of the harmlessness of death than to liken it to sleep? For him to go to Bethany and raise Lazarus from the dead is of no greater difficulty than for you to go into the next room and awaken a loved one from sleep. Have you not noticed that a sleeper will not be aroused by many outside noises, sometimes even sleeping through thunder? But the softest word spoken to him by a human voice will penetrate the inner consciousness and the sleeper will awaken at once. Our Lord will one day speak with the voice that will reach the sleeping bodies of all men. Once he shall speak with the voice that will bring the believers out from among the unbelievers as Lazarus was brought from his cave by the mention of his name. Again, Christ shall speak with the voice that will raise the unbeliever to his judgment. For all who are in their graves shall hear his voice. And now in addition to the use of this figure of sleep, the New Testament uses a second idea, that of departure. Paul knew that he was nearing the end of his life and wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6, the time of my departure is at hand. The Greek word is very interesting. In sound, it is almost like our English word analysis. And indeed, it gave us that word. In the ancient world, it was used for freeing someone from chains, for cutting a piece of goods from the loom, for the solution of a problem, for the breaking up of a banquet, for a company of soldiers breaking camp, for the dissolving of a thing into its elements, and for the raising of an anchor. In the course of my life, I have had to cross the ocean more than 40 times, 
and I know of no feeling in the world akin to that which is aroused when the signal is given for departure. One looks over the side of the steamer and sees the crowd on the shore. A few moments before, there was a pandemonium of goodbyes. There was the noise and bustle of loading the ship, the beating of gongs to warn the visitors ashore. And then the official papers are brought on board, the gangway is raised, the captain is on the bridge, the anchor is weighed, the hawsers are cast off, the last farewells are waved, and, and the ship glides silently into the stream on its way to the great ocean that lies ahead. Paul knew this same feeling on the smaller scale of the little ships that crisscrossed the Mediterranean in his day. The time of my departure is at hand, anchors away. The moorings are loosed. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me in that day. Isaac Watts has caught this feeling in one of his great hymns and shames many a Christian who has fears of death. He sings, There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. There everlasting spring abides and never withering flowers. Death like a narrow sea divides this heavenly land from ours. But timorous mortals start and shrink to cross the narrow sea and linger, shivering on the brink and fear to launch away. Oh, could we make our doubts remove those gloomy thoughts that rise and see the Canaan that we love with unbeclouded eyes? Could we but climb where Moses stood and view the landscape o'er, not Jordan's stream nor death's cold flood should fright us from the shore. And this was what Paul saw, and it made him rejoice. He had told the Philippians that he had a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which he knew to be far better. But he had to abide for a while. Now the moment of abiding was over and the time of the launching was at hand. The third word that is used in the New Testament to prefigure death is an exodus. The word is spelled in Greek exactly as we spell it in English. Peter uses it to describe his own death. He knew that he was going to leave them, and he yearned that they should have spiritual knowledge. So he told them that he was reminding them of certain truths so that they might have them always in their mind after his decease, literally after his exodus. Peter could not have used this word without knowing its connection with the history of his own people. The exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt was the turning point in their history. Scores of times the Lord reminded the people through the prophets and the poets that he was the God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. There are a hundred references or more in the Psalms to the wonders that were wrought in bringing this people out of their slavery and into the land of promise. And thus, death is presented to the people of God as deliverance from the taskmasters of our present life. The chains of this life are snapped when death comes, and we go forth 
free forever. The exodus was also deliverance from all of their enemies. The people of God walked into the path which God had made in the Red Sea. And the Egyptians attempting to do the same thing were drowned. The Christian lives this life pursued by the most relentless of foes. The world like a flock of vultures, the flesh like a slimy snake, and the devil like a roaring lion follow the believer to the last gasp of life. And then suddenly he has passed through the sea of death and the enemies are left behind forever. And most important of all, the Lord himself is with the believer in a special sense in the hour of his death. We need never pray that prayer, Lord be with us now and in the hour of our death. For Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. But though we have the certainty of his presence with us always, there is a sense in which the Lord comes personally to us, to every believer, when the time comes for him to face the end of all that he has known in order to enter into that which contains so much that is not yet known. God does not regard lightly the death of any one of his redeemed, and so he hastens to protect them. This is the inner meaning of the psalmist's cry, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's when we are in special need that he comes with special help. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. The child who misquoted this to read a very pleasant help in time of trouble was not far from the truth also. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. But it is in the most famous of all the Psalms that this truth of the presence of the Lord with the believers at the moment of their death finds its most precious presentation. To introduce this and make it more forcible, I shall first recount an analogy. Suppose an aging mother has a son who is away from home in the armed forces. She's constantly talking about his return. When John comes, he will take me riding. When John comes home, he will dig the garden. When John comes, he will fix the shelf. When John comes, he. When John comes, he. And then one day, there is a step on the stair, and the door opens, and the delighted mother cries out, John, you! Now, why is there the change of the pronoun? The answer, of course, is that John has come in, and that she no longer is speaking of him as absent but as one who is there in her presence. Now with this in mind, let us read the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He, he, he. But let death approach us and see the marvelous change. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Oh, it is not alone that he is with me, or that his rod and his staff shall comfort me in that hour. That would indeed be comfort. But the comfort of an absent God is somewhat like the comfort given by the photograph of a loved one in comparison with the warm embrace of the one that is loved. So it is that when death comes, there shall be no more parting. Then shall we speak no more of the Lord as distant on the throne of heaven. Then the door of heaven has swung open. Then he has moved to the bedside of the dying one. Then we shall see him and speak to him directly and intimately. And he will answer us with the new name that he is going to give us. The name that is known only unto him. And we shall be with him forever. The psalm goes on to show that we speak to him directly, saying, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. The table, of course, speaks of fellowship. And it will be bitter for Satan to see us feasting with the Lord, while he knows that there will be nothing left for him but to take care of the dust of our carcass. And that will be as his meat. But we will be feasting with the Lord. And then we continue speaking with him, for the psalm goes on, Thou anointest mine head with oil. Just before Aaron and the other priests entered the holy precincts of the tabernacle to undertake their ministry, they were anointed with oil by Moses. This was the last part of the ceremony before they entered into the holy place of God. And this is the last thing that happens to us on this earth. It is God's extreme unction. Note well that it is not an earthly anointing of earthly oil. I do not need any drops of oil in my ears, my eyes, my nostrils, and my mouth. God forbid. My sins have long since been dealt with on the cross of Calvary. But in that moment of death, when my transformed spirit and my renewed soul are leaving this body, the Lord himself, by his Holy Spirit, comes to anoint them, my soul and spirit, with the fragrance of Jesus Christ, so that we enter the presence of the Father in the highest heaven with the sweet savor of the perfume of Jesus Christ upon us and upon us forever. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this truth to hearts in this day. Bring conviction to any who have not been saved. Bring comfort to all who are thine own. And all these things we ask in the name and for the sake of him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.